Charter Catechism. Let's bring up our notes here. And again, you know, you can grab your uh, Trinity hymnal, look around page 870-ish. We're back to looking at uh, questions in the 30s. And today we're going to take question 32 and 33. And um, this uh, dry erase board did uh, uh, yeoman's duty yesterday at Western Days. Uh, So it was fantastic to see it being put to good use there. But I do want to put up there the order of salvation. Before I do that, let's go ahead and open with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us this wonderful opportunity to continue to learn about how it is that you have brought us to yourself through your son, Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing that you would reach out and uh, uh, take a hold of rebellious people, hard-hearted people, people who did not want anything to do with you, and yet in your goodness and your kindness, you have renewed our hearts, made them new, given us new desires and uh, a new nature that wants to follow you. Father, in our minds, we're still not yet perfectly able to understand and comprehend all this, yet we pray that you would uh, open our minds to be able to see in Scripture what you have for us on this wonderful topic of your salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so just by way of reminder, we've been saying that, of course, Jesus is the one who actually accomplishes our redemption. When he dies on the cross, he really does pay the penalty that we owe to God. So we call that redemption accomplished. But what he did for us has to be applied to us, and that's something that happens with the Holy Spirit in due time in our lives. The Spirit comes and enables us to be able to respond to the gospel and to become followers of Christ. And so we've been calling that the order of salvation, which talks about the different things that the Spirit does in applying the gospel. So before we do today's reading, so you remember the first one we looked at was that the Holy Spirit comes And the Catechism question calls this effectual calling. There is an external call, but also an internal call, right? We hear the gospel, but we don't respond to the gospel until we are regenerated. So we call that regeneration. You can call that being born again. And once we we have a new nature, we want to follow Christ before we didn't. And so then we are able to respond. And last week we looked at conversion. We are the ones who exercise faith and repentance, not God. But as we said, God is the one who enables us and gives us the ability to repent and to turn back to Christ. So we put those two, conversion, faith and repentance are flip sides of that coin. Then we're going to look at today's Next step comes justification. What is justification? Well, we're going to take a look at that. Followed by adoption, sanctification, and the very last one, you guys know what it is? Glorification. So let's go ahead and talk about these. Let's put it that way. Okay, let's see if that helps. All right, the camera's not going to see it, but that's all right. They're going to have to move the camera next time. All right, so we are here at justification. What does it mean? And by the way, just as a reminder, as we've said before, these are not things that necessarily go in a temporal order. It's a logical order of how it happens. 
And these things happen at once. It's not like you get called and regenerated and you have a new nature and then, you know, a year later, two years later, you then accept the, you know, Christ and then, you know, maybe six months later or two years again, Jesus justifies you. It all happens at the same time. But let's see if we can understand a little bit more about justification. So we're going to read questions 32 and 33. And 32 is sort of a summary. After the effectual call, what the confession does is it actually skips our conversion and doesn't discuss it until questions 80, whatever it was, 86, which is why we jumped to it last week because it's kind of looking at what God does first and then it talks about how what we do. kind of messes up this particular order. So after discussing the fact that we are given a new nature, it then wants to treat all these and talk about what God does in response to, to that. And so that's question 32. Can I have somebody go ahead and read that question and answer? Please. All right, thank you so much, Beth. You'll notice what it's saying there. What are the benefits? So these are seen as benefits, and it doesn't include glorification, because it says, what are the benefits in this life? And it gives these three. Glorification is what happens when we die. Or if Christ were to return while we're still living and give us our new natures then. But normally, for be, uh, short of that happening, this is happening when we die. So in this life, we enjoy justification, adoption, and sanctification. Right? And uh, you can look at, if you want, several passages to put in your notes. Uh, you can look at Romans 8.30 that talks about uh, having justified us. You can look at Ephesians 1.5 that talks about God choosing us for adoption. Uh, you can look at uh, 1 Corinthians 1.30 where it says that Christ Jesus, uh, God made Christ Jesus into wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So a little bit of uh, just some uh, a, a sprinkling of different passages. So those are the benefits that it says we enjoy in this life. Now, let's go ahead and take justification, the first one we're going to look at today. Question 33, this is a big one. Who can do that one for me? All right, thank you so much, Daniel. All right, so we are back into seeing that every last one of these things is the work of our Lord. It says justification is an act of God's free grace. Again, this is not something that we wrest from God. We don't justify ourselves. We don't declare ourselves righteous. We don't make ourselves righteous before God. It is an act of God's compassion and mercy towards his people. Grace, of course, means unmerited favor. This is something that God does for us. So we want to put that right at the very beginning. But the question that we have before us is one of the key questions. It's just a nice, short, little punchy statement in the shorter catechism, but it was one of the main reasons why the entire battles of the 16th century occurred between the Roman church and first Luther, and then as Luther got his message out and others, all the churches that broke off and became the Protestant churches. This was the central question, and it was, how can a person who is sinful be made right before God? In other words, how can we be declared Righteous, And you know the story. In fact, we'll talk a little bit about it uh, at the uh, end of this month. Today is the first, right? So at the end of this month, Reformation Sunday, we're going to be looking at uh, Luther's uh, journey. And in that, you might remember, he wrestled with this question. He would read in Romans chapter 8, 
where it talked about that you had to have a righteousness that exceeded, you know, as Jesus says in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, exceeds that of the Pharisees. You needed to have a righteousness in order to be accepted by God. Well, he didn't have it. He recognized that he was a sinful person. So this is the huge question that was not just before him, but before every human being. How can a guilty sinner be righteous before God? How can we be freed from that guilt? How can we be freed from that condemnation? Uh, If somebody will look up, we're going to look up some passages today. Let's take a look at two for now. Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. If somebody will look that up and somebody else look up Romans 3, 23. Deuteronomy 25, 1. Romans three twenty three, and when we get a Deuteronomy, just go ahead and uh, and read it for me, if we will. All right. So you might say, what does this have to do with justification? Well, it has to do this. It's talking about when you find that there's a dispute between two people, right? And one is in the right, and one is in the wrong. The judge judges the dispute, and then it tells us that yes, he condemns the one who is in the wrong, the one who is wicked, but it says that he justifies the righteous. So that tells us something about the nature of the word justification, and it is important that we understand that nature. This is not one of those trivial things, oh, that's just for theologians to sit there and talk about, you know, endlessly. This actually affects how you look at your salvation, how you look at God, and what you expect of Jesus. So when a judge, I mean, just think about uh, a courtroom, which is really what this is looking at. When a judge says not guilty, what is the judge actually doing? At the very least saying, yeah, there's not enough evidence. So he is declaring that person free, not guilty of the charge, not under condemnation. Does he actually have, okay, so, you know, whether you want to consider famous court cases like O.J. Simpson or, you know, whatever, you know, who knows, uh, only God knows what actually happened, you know, in a case like that, but where it is greatly suspected that the person who committed the crime got off, does the, does the declaration of the judge make that person righteous and holy and without sin? No. It's simply a declaration, right? And in the eyes of the law, that person is in that regard. Righteous means to be in right standing. Doesn't mean holy. Doesn't mean inherently good. It means you are in right standing. And so the declaration of the judge is that this person, in the eyes of the law, it's in, he's in right standing with the eyes, uh, in, in the eyes of, of the law. So, it has no actual uh, bearing on that person's nature. And I think that's an important point to pick up here, that justification is a legal declaration. And the reason I'm taking a moment to point that out is that in the medieval church, when guys like Martin Luther and others then uh, followed up and dealt with it, what they were running up with in the church is that the idea of justification was that we actually gain holiness ourselves, whether it be something that God infuses us with, which is the Roman Catholic view even today, that he kind of injects us, you know, with with little gooey bits of, of goodness and actually changes our nature in that regard, makes us holy, or whether um, 
It's something that uh, uh, you work on your own, which is what Pelagius and others believe. But either way, the point is that justification here in Scripture makes it very clear. It simply declares that a person is righteous. It is a declaration. Um, and, or, and so I guess the key thing I want you guys to walk away from without, I'm, I'm thinking of all the different things that we can include in talking about the Reformation, but I'm going to try to leave those for Reformation Sunday, <laughs> and then we'll deal with them there. The point is, God has pronounced sentence on, on sinners like us, and that sentence is not guilty. That sentence is that God sees that person under no condemnation, that person is righteous. If somebody will read um, Romans 3.23, and we'll move to the... All right, so there is in Romans 3.23, this very important... No, that's fine. Uh, you, you, you segued right into what I wanted to talk about. So Romans 3.23 tells us that every person is guilty, so nobody has inherent righteousness and inherent goodness. That puts us into trouble, but here we're reading that because of what Jesus has done for us, God declares us righteous. But how can that be? On what basis does God declare us righteous? And again, these are the, diff- the, the issues that have come up over the centuries, and they actually matter. So during the time of the Reformation, the question was, what does it mean that God declares us righteous? Or not, They didn't even think of decla- declaration. What does it mean that we have to be righteous? And the answer that came out biblically was, God declares us righteous. That doesn't make us holy, but it does declare us righteous. Then the next question is, on what basis does God do that? Let me ask you that. What do you think? Can God just look and say, well, I'll just take my magic righteousness wand and just declare you righteous? Okay, so my mom, who knows these things, says, but if Christ paid. So that's, that's really coming down to it. That's the question I want to ask, is what is the basis how does Christ's death enter into his ability to declare us righteous? If God simply were to say, that's fine, you're all declared you know, righteous, what would that do to his character? He wouldn't be just. Okay, so what does that mean that he would not be just? If he is a righteous God himself, then he must indeed deal with evil. So, as my mom was just pointing out, the death of Christ is the basis upon which he can declare us righteous. And that is such an important point because um, at this stage, all we're talking about is the declaration, not the making of us actually holy, which comes in sanctification. We'll talk about that when we get to it. But it's important to recognize what's actually happening here. Uh, The word that we often use, um, you'll, you'll hear it in church and so on, It's a theological term. It's the term imputation. Imputation means to reckon, to regard someone as something. And so what we see in Scripture is that we are regarded as righteous, right? When Abraham believes, it says that it was reckoned to him, as Galatians, reckoned to him or counted to him as righteousness. That person uh, was not righteous in and of themselves, but the righteousness of another is given to him. And so that's what we see with Jesus. Because Jesus pays the penalty that we owe God for our sin and rebellion, then God's justice is preserved, right? He does punish that sin. He doesn't punish it in us. 
he punishes it in Jesus. And then, because of that, that perfect record of Jesus' obedience is regarded, reckoned, imputed, whichever of those words you know you want to use, to us, and God doesn't see our record of unrighteousness. He sees Jesus' record of righteousness, which has been given to us, and so he declares us righteous. So again, I, if I'm making a whole lot of distinctions here, I just want us to really get that point because it's probably the number one issue, not just 500 years ago during the time of the Reformation, but if I were to go out there, you know, do one of these man on the street kind of things and go into evangelical churches, forget the mainline churches are easy to pick on uh, when they don't get something right, but just go into evangelical churches and ask people, what is the basis for your um, you know, why do you think you should go to heaven? And what would be the answer of so many people today? Well, I'm a good person. They see that inherent goodness in them. And if that's what you're resting on, you're going to find on that last day that you don't simply have enough to offer to God. It's going to be a wake-up call for many, many, many people. By the way, as a little aside, our, our culture continues to sink lower and lower into depravity and to chaos into godlessness, which is really what it comes down to. And there are a lot of Christians who are fretting, a lot of Christians who are saying, you know, this is terrible and everything is, uh, our country is, is whoever would have thought that we're now Marxist and socialist and dictatorial uh, and, and authoritarian and anti-freedom and all that. And all that is true and it is terrible. And it's getting worse. It's only just beginning. But as Christians, we ought not to despair because, first of all, we remember that Jesus is the one who's building his church. And, it tells, and he tells us the gates of hell won't even prevail against the building of his church. And he routinely brings his church into times such as this. Much, much, much worse cases, like when Mao took over in China and he kicked out all the you know, white missionaries, all the Western missionaries. And everybody thought it was the end of the Chinese church. It had taken of 100 years, 100 years of missionaries laboring, uh, right? Taylor Hudson and others and so on. And all these guys doing their thing to get where? To get to maybe 20,000 converts total. And I'm not talking about 20,000 during uh, the ejection of the Western missionaries. 20,000 from when they started in the early 1800s. Just not a whole lot. The, the uh, bamboo curtain, as it was called, falls down on the, um, um, on the folks in China, and it isn't until the 70s, Nixon and so on, that we finally get a peek behind the bamboo curtain. And what do we discover about the church? It's in the millions. In the millions. And they did it without Western missionaries. That's not to say there wasn't a role for the Western missionaries. And certainly we are to labor, just like, you know, we talk about working in the Muslim world today, and it doesn't look like there's a whole lot of, you know, uh, uh, ground being made. But God will choose when that time comes. And it happened then, and it just looked like it was the end. But God used the suffering. God used all that uh, uh, tyrannical regime to refine his church and to make it what it is. And I strongly believe that, that we continue on that path here. And we're already seeing it. The churches are ultimately the target. Christians are ultimately the target. We're, as Paul says, we're involved in spiritual warfare. And the evil one is behind wokeness and CRT and BLM and Biden and everything else. Yes, I did say that on, online. Um, you know, all those different things. And, and all the other, you know, whatever party, there's enough evil to go around. But the point simply being is all these folks that are filling up all these churches, the little bouncy churches and 
you know, where all the crazy stuff is going on, that, I, that we were to ask them this question. And um, they would not be able to give a proper answer of where their trust is and so on. As things get harder and the cultural and the social cost of following Jesus rises in our society, those people will leave. They just don't want to deal with being ostracized and marginalized and canceled and everything else. And what that's going to mean is the church will be purified. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, the church will grow stronger. It'll learn to pray again. It will learn to rely on Christ for everything again, for its very survival and so on. We won't put our stock in entertainment, money, and all that stuff. Anyway, I don't want to go on and on about that. But the point simply being is questions like this are vitally important. As we lose those, the best way that we want to address that is through education. If that's not working, then God takes out the switch. And he works it in his church through persecution, through oppression, through those sorts of things, so that we really, really do learn. It's not, let me be clear. It's not that we're learning theology. That's what God's purpose is not so you have some head knowledge. But we will gain this as we go through those experiences. Does that make sense? So anyway, that's why I'm spending some time on this. I think it's just a, very important for us to distinguish what we've seen so far, that justification is not you literally becoming holy. As I said, in the Roman Catholic Church, which is, by the way, growing. And it's when people think of the church, on TV, when they talk about the church or in movies, what are they referring to? The Roman church, always. Supreme Court justices who are Christians, what are they? Roman Catholic. All your favorite news anchors on Fox News that you watch, oh, because they're Christians, what are they? Roman Catholic. Okay, there's only one that I know of that's, that's not. The point I'm trying to get at, it, and I'm not trying to knock the Catholic Church, there's things that work there, and I hope that there will be a latter-day reformation for them as well, where they'll be able to grab a hold of these things. Um, but all that said, they still hold to this view of righteousness is something that Jesus, uh, that God infuses in you. And so they confuse, as we're going to see, sanctification with justification. But that's a story for another day. The key thing is, this is a legal declaration where the righteousness that belongs to Christ because he obeyed God perfectly is transferred over to you. And then your unrighteousness, your sin, the guilt of your sin is transferred over to him. And it's what the uh, Puritans used to call the great exchange. That is the basis for us being declared righteous. Okay, let's see. Um, oh, some passages here to read for you. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21, uh, for uh, God has made him, referring to Christ, to be sin for us so that we might be made, uh, have the righteousness of God in him. So that's Second Corinthians 5.21. I'm just reading it here in the original. Uh, I should have grabbed it in the ESV. But again, that's the point is that God then looks at us and sees Jesus as a sinner, and so he punishes him on the cross, but he sees us as if we had never sinned, which is really an amazing thing. Okay, any questions about that? I spent some time just making sure that that was all very, very clear. Tegan? Yeah, I'm going to get a little ahead of ourselves. What we're going to show here is Jesus, you know, does, uh, well, let me just go back. God declares us righteous here, legal declaration, 
it means that he sees us. You know, you can take a passage like uh, Zechariah where the, the high priest Joshua is, um, uh, there's a vision, it's not literally happening, but he's dressed in filthy rags. It actually tells us that he's covered in dung. You know, that, that's how filthy it is. And the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus, tells him to take off that robe and give him clean robes, uh, that kind of thing. And it's this idea that we have something that we're wearing that was given to us. It's not ours, that kind of stuff. We see that as what we're talking about here. You're externally righteous, and God recognizes you as righteous. You have parables like Jesus saying that all those who were invited into the, in the wedding feast were given a robe, a white robe, as they walk in. And anybody who does not have that robe doesn't doesn't belong and then they find the one wedding guest who came in and they tell him dude where's you know how'd you get in here well you know whatever and he doesn't have a robe and they kick him out that kind of thing implying that there will be people who identify with the church but in the end are not covered with the righteousness of Christ and in the end they will be kicked out they don't actually belong and will not sit at the wedding feast of the lamb on the last day all that pictures this constant imagery of clothing and Paul takes you know talks about taking off and putting on and all that that it is an external declaration about how God sees us. But, as we read in Romans eight thirty and 31, uh, he who declared us, who justifies us, also sanctifies us. Sanctification is, if God declares you righteous, he's not a liar, so he begins to make you what he declares you to be. And so, sanctification, as we'll get to in more detail when we get to that question, is the process of the Holy Spirit actually making us more and more like Christ in our nature. Those two things, though, are distinct. And in Roman Catholicism, and, you know, I've joked about this for all those young men who, or maybe perhaps now older men who are always playing these games, the little Pippa boy, that doesn't really look like a pit boy, but that's a human being. <laughs> it's got an octopus head. But anyway... <laughs> Uh, the idea is that, you know, you've got different levels of righteousness. You know, you're going to be all filled up. And so as you do good things, your righteousness meter fills up, that kind of thing. And this is uh, why in the Roman system, you know, if you sin, then your righteousness meter drops. And so then you go to your priest and you confess it and he gives you something to do, penance. Penance is what do you do to make up for it? And as you do that, you know, you fill that up. And if you die before you've got it filled up, then you go to purgatory. And in purgatory, you pay off, you know, you, you, you yourself, and not Christ paying your sins. You pay off through suffering and purgatory what remains so that you can fill that up. If you do die uh, maxed out, then you go straight to heaven. And then if you're one of the saints, because remember, they don't see the saints as all believers, but just a select few. What makes it a saint? It's when you're so righteous that you pop your head and the righteousness spills out, and the Pope collects it in a little dish. Actually, he'll say it's in heaven, but it's the treasury of righteousness from which the Pope can grab and give to people. So he can grab some, some of your you know, extra righteousness and give it to some poor schmuck, that kind of thing. But the idea then is like, you know, like when you baste a turkey, is that what, what justification is, is Jesus coming through with the, you know, the, the, the little uh, baster things, and he... And he puts that in there. So if you ask a Roman Catholic, is he saved by grace? They'll say yes, because God graciously infuses, he injects in us, he injects in us that righteousness to pump it up and 
and that kind of thing. So um, that's where the infusion part comes. Why does that even matter today? Well, I'm not going to run off to the Roman Catholic Church. There's a view called federal vision. Anybody heard of that? It's been yep, sweeping the church since uh, about 2000. It is, uh, and I won't go into all the details here, but it is the child, the son of, uh, of, of another view that started in the 70s and really got traction in the 80s and then was pretty much put down in the 90s called theonomy. And theonomy, which just simply means uh, God's law, we're all lovers of God's law and we all ought to be obeying God's law. And the theonomists are like all these things. They're, when you don't have one, uh, one group, you have different people with different views, you can't nail them all down with that label. But at the very least, theonomists were basically saying Christians have become antinomian, which means we're rejecting God's law, we're living however we want. And, and clearly, God calls us to obedience. That's good, we would agree with that. Uh, as it's often been said, you're saved by faith alone, but you're not saved by a faith that is alone. It's always accompanied by works. And so there must be obedience. Got it. But Theonomist went on further to talk about we need to bring back the Old Testament law, the ceremonial law, and to different degrees, depending on the person who is advancing the view, it had this, this, this almost kind of, you know, let's go back and let's, let's stone homosexuals and if your children talk back to you, you can kill them and so on. Very few people got there. But there was a lot of push about um, uh, basically we need to restore at the national level um, um, a theocracy almost. And if you've been paying attention, you've seen today that there's this new thing called Christian nationalism that has some good things as always, pointing out what's wrong in our culture and so on, but also has shades of theonomy. But theonomy, as it got uh, basically squelched in all the Reformed denominations, uh, it actually grabbed the hold of Pentecostalism and some Baptist circles, but in the Reformed, we kind of said, and what always happens whenever a, uh, uh, um, we call it a heterodox view comes up, uh, these are not people who are uh, rejecting Christ and so on, but they've got something that doesn't quite line up. Whenever those views come up, they always peel off a group of people that, you know, from the church. And so there was a, a, a new Reformed denomination formed, the CREC, uh, and, and it was kind of like this beginning of this kind of theonomy thing. But along with that, there developed this view called federal vision, which is the spiritual heir. And the federal vision, which is a, even more complex, the short of it is you can be in the covenant, and to be in the covenant with God is a gracious thing, but you better obey if you want to stay in the covenant. So it gets right back to you have to do something. And there's a little bit more to it, and if you were to ask a federal vision guy, he would say, that's not the case at all, it's all by Jesus. But in, in essence, every last Reformed denomination, the PCA, the OPC, the URCNA, the RCUS, the RPCNA, the ARP, and the EPC, I mean, that's a pretty broad spread of all conservative denominations, all looked at federal visions and ended up saying, no, that's not right. And federal vision is very much built on a confusion of justification and sanctification so again these things really do matter that we keep them separate um, your right standing before God never depends never ever depends on your actual goodness that's not an excuse saying I can now live however you want because as we're going to see if God actually justifies you he will also sanctify you so that there will be visible 
uh, measurable change in your life. But your acceptance before God never depends on your goodness. If there's only one thing that we walk away from here today, it's understanding that. And the reason that makes a difference day to day is, you know, questions like, how do I know that God isn't going to kick me out? How do I know that God loves me? How do I know that God is going to follow through on his promises for me? And this is the answer right here. It tells us that there's nothing that you can do that's going to make you make God love you less. And why is that? Because he sees you with the same righteousness as his son. By the same token, there's nothing that you can do that's going to make God love you more. Because he already has maximum love for you, the same love that he has for his son. Right? When Jesus was baptized and he, uh, the heavens were open and the spirit descended, what was it that God said to Jesus? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he would repeat that again uh, at the transfiguration. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, which is a story for a whole other day, uh, why we need to listen to him. But the point is that Jesus now, uh, God now says that same thing of you. This is my beloved son, my beloved daughter, with whom I am well pleased. And it's because of what Jesus has done, because of that imputation. And that's a very important point, is you might sit there and sin and sit there and say, I've fallen into this trap, and how can God continue loving me? And we remember this, this very important point. There's nothing that you can do that's going to make him love you less, but neither do you have to work to make him love you more. Why do we do good things? We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to sanctification, but it's ultimately to thank God for what he's done because it pleases him and we're in a relationship with him and when you love someone, you want to do those things that is pleasing to them. But it has nothing to do with your right standing. Is that absolutely clear? Right? So God accepts you in no way because of your goodness. That's the thing that we want to be able to pick up on here. And so it means that you know, you're secure. You're absolutely secure in knowing that you will always be accepted by God because it never depended upon you and never will depend upon you. And that is a game changer. When I talk to my Roman Catholic friends, they can never know whether they've done enough, right? Where are they on the pip boy scale? They can't know. At least they can't be 100% sure. Talk to our neighbors in the mosque, which are not Christian, but still very much follow this idea that you have to please Allah. Allah is just a name for God. And so they have to please God. They can never know. In fact, the only thing that's guaranteed in the Quran is by taking out infidels, which is why you you sit there and you say, why do these bunch of young men go around blowing themselves up? It really is quite logical. They're trying to do the same thing you're trying to do. They're trying to be right with God. And they've been told, Hey, look, why spend the whole of your life doing the level best when you can just boom, literally, and it wasn't meant to, okay, nobody laughed, Um, but literally just boom, and when you wake up, you're going to be in paradise. That sounds pretty good. Fling. Well, I appreciate your sharing that with us because it really does represent where, where literally billions of people are on the planet 
if you look at every, every system outside of Christianity that cares about these things, it's all about being good. You might say, well, how about things like secular humanism? They're trying so hard to be good too. Their salvation happens in this life, but it's all about, you know, that, you ever wonder when you look and you say, well, progressives, they, they, they melt down when, you know, when, when some of these things are not going their way. That's because this is all there is. Salvation is here. They fight for it as much as we would fight for Christ because it's their religious um, um, motivation. So people everywhere are trying to, we all know something's wrong and we, not, we need to deal with it. And every system out there in some way proposes how you can be good enough. And that's why Christianity is so radical. You know, as uh, Jack Miller used to say, cheer up. You're much worse than you think. And that's the starting point. You've got to tell them and show them uh, that we, have got, we, we will never be good enough. The only people who have assurance outside of Christianity are those people who are deluded to think that they're really good. And there are people out there who believe that. And they are sure. But most people who have a little bit of sensitivity can never know. But, you know, as Jack Miller used to then say next, cheer up. God's grace is much greater than you can imagine. And then he would go on and unfold that grace shown to us in Christ. That's where our level of assurance comes. And our brothers and sisters, even within the church, you said at a Baptist church, and I don't want to pick on any one group. There are Baptists who get this, but there are many who don't. The reason we insist on this is not because we want some theological points. We can go around saying, oh, we're Presbyterians and Calvinists and Reformed, and we understand this a whole lot better than you understand it. That's not our goal. Our goal is that so that you can live a life of grateful assurance, if that makes sense, where you don't have to sit there all your life wondering like Luther, who literally trembled, not knowing what his standing was, so that we don't have to go through what you just described, Lang, until God finally gave you that assurance and showed you. But until then, it's a terrible way to live. We don't want people living that way. We want you to be able to know that what Jesus has done is sufficient. And that changes everything in the way we live. So thank you for sharing that, because that's, I, I suspect many of you may have stories like that, um, you know, in your backgrounds, or at least know people. And the sad thing is, all Christians should be able to just, contra the world, say that we have that assurance. But in the church, uh, there's been, this has been so attacked. It's the one key point that Satan goes for because if he undermines justification, everything else falls apart. If you're relying on anything else other than Christ, all your salvation falls apart. Let me throw out just a, a couple of last things that I want to mention here. Um, actually, I already kind of alluded to some of them already, but I want to talk about faith and good works and where they enter into this. So, you know, People say, and, and I think Pastor Dave dealt with this uh, not too long ago, but just since it comes up here, let's deal with it here. People sit there and say, what saves you? Well, I'm saved by faith. And that's completely untrue. Your faith itself does not save you. Uh, and as Pastor Dave has pointed out, there's people who have faith in all sorts of things. You can have faith in the Buddhist system, the karmic system of Hinduism and Buddhism. You can have faith in all sorts of things. None of those things will save you. Uh, we all exercise faith, which is trusting. Faith does not mean believing something blindly. That's a, that's a misconception. In fact, the term for that is blind faith, which is not very smart. Real faith always has a ground. 
right? It means you're trusting in something. Uh, when you get on an airplane, you are exercising faith. Faith in the principles of aeronautics that have been developed by scientists and engineers that the airplane's very concept will work. Faith in the, en- uh, the, the engineers of this particular model of aircraft. Faith in the mechanics and the people who maintain the aircraft. Faith in those who are operating it and flying it. You exercise that faith. You are putting your trust in others at that moment, right? If you don't get on the airplane, then you don't really, you might believe that the airplane exists, I can see it, I can touch it, but you don't have faith enough to actually entrust your life to it, right? There are many, many people who might believe that God is real, might believe that Jesus is real, might believe that Jesus did everything that the Bible says, and yet they themselves are not trusting. But the faith itself does not save. So if I have faith, in a wheelbarrow that I pin some um, cardboard wings to and then, you know, go down a sled and try to jump the Grand Canyon on it, I can have as much faith as, I, as you might have when you get on an airplane. But does the faith get me across the Grand Canyon? No. It's going to fail, right? That kind of thing. So your faith in and of itself doesn't save you. It's the object of the faith the person in whom you have faith, or the thing, you know, depending on the subject matter at hand. In this case, since we're talking about Christ, it's the person in whom you have faith that saves you. So your faith itself is not salvific. Your your, your faith is simply the means by which you grab a hold of Jesus. He's the one who saves you, not your faith. And that, again, is an important point. If I went around with a little microphone, you know, to various evangelical churches and asked, that point will be lost on a lot of people. And what it does is it shifts away and makes it so much easier to just tell people what's important is that you have faith. It doesn't matter so much what you have faith in. And you can be awfully sincere. You can trust in that wheelbarrow with the cardboard wings and it's gonna end in disaster. Again, we're talking about eternal realities here, not whether you're having faith in you know, something much, much lesser and uh, less significant. Um, Okay, just because of time, it's 10.05, I'm gonna skip all this stuff here. Passages like Romans 8.31, I mean Romans 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. We're talking about since Jesus receives our condemnation, all that. Okay, Um, one last thing then, good works. I think I kind of already uh, alluded to that. And Paul says in Galatians 2.16 that uh, no man is justified by works of the law, but only by faith in Jesus Christ. The first thing you must think is, well, then there's no place for works. But just in short, um, as we've often said before, you can take passages like James 2.26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. The idea is that um, your good works are not the basis of, for your salvation, but they are the outcome of your salvation. Think about that. They're not what brings you, you know, to, to a right standing with God, but they are what a right standing with God produces. It's the fruit of and not the ground of your salvation. Does that make sense? It is not something that you need in order to be saved, but it is something that you will do. And um, uh, Ephesians 2.10 talks about, well, Ephesians 7 Ephesians 2, 7, 8, and 9 uh, goes on and makes very clear that our faith, that our salvation is 
by, uh, by faith alone, and it tells us even that faith is a gift. But Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are created for good works. The reason that God saves us, and, and so let me end with this because this might be a radical thought. When we talk about the law, and you know, we say the law itself does not save us, it's not the basis. We have to understand that God is saving us for the law. In one sense, he's saving us from the law, saving us from relying on the law and that kind of thing, and the law doesn't save you. But he is saving you to the law because what is the purpose of our salvation? That we glorify God. All things ultimately is for God's glory. But the way that we glorify God is by living godly lives, living the lives that he intended for us. Before the fall, God had made us in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, and he expected us to live in certain ways. When you look at something like the Ten Commandments, right, do not murder, do not kill, uh, you know, people do not steal from them, do not, you know, uh, do sexual sin and so on. When you look at all these, what all, they're not limits on, on your fun, right, which is how some people see it. But it's actually talking about what is the way that we should be living as godly people. What is the way that humans were designed to live, where we live in harmony and justice and so on. I mean, the very things that we all want in our neighborhoods. You don't want somebody going through your neighborhood and stealing your car and, you know, and, and assaulting you when you go out to take out the trash or anything. We say that's the way we want a just society. So that is what God has designed us. He, that's what he made us. And in our rebellion, we lose that. But our salvation is meant to bring us back to that. So if you think about that that way, then the law becomes simply the, uh, the guide for how we live in a way that promotes human flourishing, that promotes that holiness of character. And so think of it that way. God saves us from our rebellion where we break God's law and the consequences of what it meant that breaks God's law, but he's not saving us apart from that. He's saving us to obedience of that law. Is that good? So our works don't save us, but it is what he is saving us for so that we can live obedient lives that in their very nature not only bring glory to him, but is really what enables us to live fully as human beings. Yeah? All good? Okay. There's a lot there, uh, and we're already at 1010, so let's go ahead and stop there. Um, Next week, we'll jump into adoption, which is the most ignored of all the steps in the order of salvation. I think we have put so much emphasis on justification, as rightly, you know, we should because of all these things that we're talking about here, how it's misunderstood even within the churches. But somewhere in the process of doing that uh, and then focusing on our sanctification, that we've kind of lost the beauty of adoption right there in the middle. So uh, that will be um, the topic for next week, Lord willing. Okay, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get ready for worship. Father in heaven, we thank you that our salvation depends wholly upon Jesus Christ. We're thankful for his goodness. We're thankful that he has done everything well, and we're thankful that because uh, of that goodness that has been given to us, you now have declared us righteous, that judge in heaven. It means, Father, that we don't need to wait for judgment day to know what the verdict is because you have already declared that verdict of not guilty for us. And that gives us true assurance. And Father, we know that there are many, many believers, perhaps even some in this room, who wrestle with assurance and wrestle with whether we're good enough and wrestle with, with whether you're ever going to withdraw your love and your care and your compassion. And we pray that the truths of these, this matter, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that that will sink deeply into our hearts, and into our minds, that it will grant us assurance, that it will impel us 
to live lives of grateful obedience in order to please you, in order to live as you always intended. And we pray that the knowledge that we're learning here doesn't just stay academic, but actually will change and shape us as believers in Christ for our good, the good of those around us, and for the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.